So calling is that gravitational force that gets you up in the morning. It's a leader who inspires you. It's a business you want to build. It's a bottom line you want to grow. It's a it's a it's a societal ill that you wish to remedy. It's a family you want to nurture, right? It can be anything. It is just simply your reason why. It is your purpose. host and Emily Kin. And before we start with today's show, please remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. Today, our special guest is Laura Gastner Otting, or LGO as she's also known. Laura started her career when she dropped out of law school to join an unknown Southern governor presidential campaign, and she ended up as the presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House, where she helped shape the National Service Program. AmeriCorps, in which more than 1 million Americans have now served. Today, she's a global keynote speaker and the author of the book Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life, which debuted as number two in the Washington Post bestseller list right behind Michelle Obama's book. Welcome to the Mindset Zone, Laura. I would like to start with how do you define success nowadays, today? Ah, uh, see, I like that little caveat, the today, the nowadays, because when the way I describe success when I was much younger is completely different than how I describe success now. And I think part of the problem, at least for me, was that I spent a lot of time when I was younger pursuing success as defined by everybody else. I had a teacher who told me I'd be a great lawyer. I had a grandmother who wanted me to marry the nice Jewish doctor. I had a boss who wanted me to put profits before mission. And, you know, it took a really long time for me to figure out that for me, my definition of success is when the very best of what I am able to do is called upon to solve a problem I actually care about solving. And I'm being rewarded for solving that problem in some way that is meaningful to me. And meaning can be financial, it can be karmic, it can be emotional, it could be, you know, the long game. It's just a matter of what is actually meaningful to me in that moment. And so for me, success really is defined as when what I do matches who I am at this age and this life stage. I love that. And the, the answer will be different for each one of us. Each one will have their own personalized definition of success. I mean, not only is my definition different than your definition, but each of our own definitions are different than our own definitions were 10 years ago and 10 years from now. So, you know, when I was 21 years old, dropping out of law school because <laughs> I didn't fit my teacher's definition of success, 
um, I found myself on a presidential campaign. And on that presidential campaign, I was paid in all the idealism and ramen soup I could eat. But now, you know, I'm 51 years old and I learned that all the idealism and ramen soup doesn't buy the 800 thread count sheets, which I've come to learn <laughs> I'm a bit of a princess now. So, you know, it's really very different. You know, my husband and I always joke around that when we were much younger, we could have lived in New York City because we could have, we would have been more than happy to live in a hovel with, you know, 14 other people and, you know, uh, cockroaches roaches on the floor and rats in the attic. It didn't matter to us because we would be in New York City. And now, I don't know. I feel like we're like in between. We're like, we're sort of too old for that, but also not wealthy enough to live the kind of way we'd want to. Because <laughs> again, see before, 800 thread count sheets and princess. <laughs> yeah. So our taste is always a little bit ahead of us. We are always changing and we were always growing. And it's funny, you know, when my book Limitless came out, I went on like 150 different podcasts and I would always get asked this question of like, what would you tell your 22-year-old self if you could go back and give yourself advice? And I remember thinking to myself, what a stupid question. Because, okay, first of all, even uh, if I could go back and even if my 22-year-old self knew what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be, I'd be like go back and give myself advice from a podcast that was recorded over the internet that I'm listening to on my mobile phone. Like none of those three things actually existed when I was 22. So even if I did know myself and even if I did know who I wanted to be, and even if I did know what kind of mark I wanted to make in the world, the world around us also changes. So our definition of success has to continue to grow and change and evolve as we grow and change and evolve. And I think that means we have to give ourselves the grace to understand that the dis the, the, the very decision that we made when we were 16, 17, 18 years old, when somebody was like, pick a path, pick a major, pick a trade, pick a college. And we we're like, okay, that decision that we made was made when we literally didn't have a frontal lobe, like the part of our brain that dictates good, sound, logical decision-making. It wasn't formed when we were asked to make a decision that would impact the very rest of our lives. So I love that your, that your show focuses on mindset because part of having a strong mindset is having a malleable mindset that says, I could push and I can push and I can push towards this thing. But first I have to ask myself, do I actually care about that thing anymore? Or have I learned something about myself in the pursuit of that thing that has told me that I actually want to take a step to the left or a step to the right? Because those directions are pretty neat too. I love that. And it's a different twist even to the concept of Carl Dweck of the grow and the fixed mindset, because it's uh, that uh, we don't want to get fixated in a definition of success. We want to allow that to grow as our life grows. I think that we should all be so lucky to have the privilege and the flexibility to shift our targets as we ourselves shift in our interests and our desires. Love that. And but let me go to your 21, uh, uh, 21 self in a different way. I promise not is uh, about for you to advise what you were at that time. But it's very curious for me because you you were in law school it was i bet that at the time was difficult to enter in, in law school too uh, so you were um, and and the decision of leaving that path to do something that was risky and unknown because let's face it at the time nobody believed that uh, bill clinton will made it uh, 
<laughs> well, uh, th that was a very uh, courageous decision. Can you can you tell us as best as you can what made you f forget some of the expectations that exist and do that jump? You know, I had gone into law school and I actually talk about this in my first TEDx. I tell the story about how I grew up thinking I was going to be the first female Democratic senator from the great state of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Florida still hasn't elected a female Democratic senator. So, you know, get on that sunshine state. But uh, uh, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to solve all the problems in the world. And and that was what I thought. I just I, I grew up thinking that I was special, that I was, you know, different and that I was going to be always going to solve all the problems. And then I got to law school and I, I to be honest, Anna, I was pretty miserable in law school. I was holding on by the skin of my teeth. I was barely passing. And so I did what a lot of young women do in moments when they're completely and entirely miserable is that I dated a guy who was absolutely terrible for me. He was the world's worst boyfriend. And one day he he was going to give me a ride home in his IROC Z. No kidding. Like he drove one of those like little muscle cars and we're driving back to my apartment and we're like jamming out to Whitesnake or something. And he was like, oh, well, first I want to stop by this guy's campaign office. He's running for president. And I was like, governor who from where? Arkansas, not a chance in hell. George H.W. Bush had just won Desert Storm. He had a 91% approval rating. And the Democrats basically put up a candidate who was like a sacrificial lamb. Nobody expected the guy from Hope to go anywhere. And so we go to this guy's campaign office and we walk into uh, this little strip mall and there's a little TV in the corner. And on this TV in the corner, Black and white TV is then Governor Bill Clinton. He still had dark hair and he was giving this impassioned speech that there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And I was like, yes, preach. And he offered as a policy solution service, community service in exchange for college tuition. Change the world while you're changing yourself. And I was like, boom, lightning bolt. That needs to happen. And so I started volunteering on the campaign. And about two weeks later, all four principals, Bill and Hillary and Al and Tipper Gore, came to this tiny town of Gainesville, Florida. And we turned out 36,000 people wow. for that rally. And so, of course, the national office was like, who are those volunteers? Let's put them on staff. And again, putting us on staff meant we signed on the dotted line and they gave us lots of idealism and ramen soup and cold pizza. And we slept on high school gymnasium floors. But at the time, the the excitement of doing something bigger than myself sure beat going back to the law school library and beating my head against the, the books all day and all night. I was miserable. And so I found this calling that I never even knew I wanted. And was a successful thing because even that description of the rally was a meaningful challenge for you. And you really gave your very best at the time and you did quite an achievement that you uh, put the spotlight of the work that you have done. You know, there are moments in our lives where we don't realize not only that failure is not an option, but that if we failed, how bad things would be. I mean, at that point in my life, I was so young and naive and idealistic that I was like, sure, why not? Let's do it. Worst case scenario, I'll just go back to law school. And, you know, it's funny because I, I, I you know, I do a lot of keynoting and I, I guess lectured a lot of business uh, school classes, entrepreneurship classes. And there's always somebody at the end who like raises their hand, this sort of sheepish raising their hand. And they're like, um, 
how long did it take you to write your business plan? Because of course I dropped out of law school. I joined the Clinton campaign. I worked in the White House. I ended up going into executive search. I, I, I founded my own firm, super successful, grew it international, sold it the whole nine yards. And they're like, how long did it take you to write your business plan? And I'm like, I don't know. You got a cocktail napkin? I'll, I'll write it for you now. And they were like, but I don't, I don't understand. Like, what would you do if you failed? Like, I didn't have a business plan. I had business. So I just started and I figured it out as I went along. And what would I do if I failed? Well, I mean, I always turn the question back to them. And I'm like, well, you're an entrepreneur. You're in an entrepreneurship class. What will you do if you fail? And the answer is always the same. Uh, well, I'll just, I guess I'll go get, get, get another cubicle job and I'll figure it out and I'll do that work until I have another plan and then I'll start another business. And I'm like, great. What will you do if you succeed? And then they're always like, Oh, crickets every time. Literally, no one's ever had that answer. And I think the problem is, is that we spend so long planning for failure that we get trapped in the worry about failure. We get trapped in the inevitability of failure. And when we don't plan for success, we're actually stopping ourselves from achieving even more success. Because when you plan for failure, look, at the end of the day, if I said to you, what would you do if you failed? You would tell me what you would do. Great, you have a plan B. Write it down, make it pretty, put it in a binder, stick it in your bottom left drawer, and don't ever think about it again. Now, what will you do if you succeed? There are 15 different iterations of what success could look like. And so what are your plans if you're starting to see some excitement, some action, some noise, or some, some, some momentum towards one of those? What will you do? And if you spend more time thinking about that, there's so much science around manifestation and all of those things that actually shows that the, the, the work of vocalizing, of internalizing what that might look like actually tells your brain to see more of those opportunities so that you, you can actually go out and achieve those things. And so, you know, for me, I, I left law school and I, and I joined this campaign mostly because what was in the rear view was so horrible. I didn't want to go back that I only wanted to go forward. And once I knew plan B was, okay, I guess you'll go back then I could figure out how to go forward. Yeah. And you absolutely went forward and you check all the boxes and you were successful like you were describing in, in the campaign and then in the, spe the specific uh, um, service program that you helped to develop uh, and afterwards in your own company. But you were checking all the boxes, being successful in many different ways. And in many ways, I think you were doing a meaningful challenge for you. You were absolutely giving your best. But there was, like you were speaking in the beginning, there was a moment that you decide, okay, I should really look into uh, what is this of success? How can I define success? And how I can help myself and others to be able to live it in a more specific way. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is one of the origins of your limit, your book, Limitless, correct? It is. So as I mentioned, I went from the White House into executive search uh, and I did executive search for specifically nonprofit universities, foundations, advocacy organizations and uh, socially responsible corporations. And you would think that all of these people who were mission driven, who had a calling, who were doing something, you know, wearing the white hat, doing something for the good of the world, you would think that these people who were successful would be really happy, right? They have it all. Amazing. The holy grail. So it was my job to call the most successful people in the world on behalf of my clients. 
which, and, and, and once I got them on the phone, it was my job to recruit them away on behalf of my clients, turning their lives upside down, leaving them across the country, across the world to take on a job that they might not have known existed, an organization they may not also have known existed from a headhunter who was calling them who they definitely know didn't know existed. And it sounds like kind of a hard job, except I was helped by something very specific. I called all these people because they were super successful, but they all called me back because despite all that success, they weren't very happy. And I thought to myself, well, these people aren't happy. Surely there's no hope for the rest of us, right? <laughs> so over the course of 20 years in executive search, there were like a handful of people that I wasn't able to recruit away. And I was fascinated about them because of course I am, you know, I spend a lot of time now focusing on this question of why doesn't success equal happiness? Like we're all handed the scorecard, the teacher, the parent, the boss that I mentioned in the beginning, our definition of success. And we go and we fill all the boxes and we fill and we fill and we fill. And then all the boxes are full and we're like, if all the boxes are full, why do I still feel so empty? And so I began to study some of the people who were not able to be recruited away, the ones who were successful and happy. And I also started to look at my own career, dropping out of law school, joining the Clinton campaign, leaving the White House in the middle of the first, uh, in the in the middle of the first administration, uh, going to the big marquee firm and then leaving that and starting my own thing. And then when I was at the top of my game, selling it to my people and leaving when I could have just ridden off in the sunset and just mailed it in for the next 20 years. And what I realized was that it's not success that brings us happiness, it's consonants. And consonance is this idea of alignment, of flow, of harmony. Consonance is the opposite of dissonance. You know, you know dissonance, which is like noise and cacophony and the sort of organ failing, failing rejection when like things you just feel like, I don't know what's right, but I know this is wrong. Consonance is the opposite. It's like when you're doing that thing, as I mentioned earlier, when the very best of what you do is being called upon to solve a problem at hand and you're being rewarded for solving that problem in a way that you actually care about. That's when you are in the zone. And so I started to study people who were in consonants. And what I realized is that they had four particular things. They had calling, connection, contribution, and control. And again, some of them had tons of one and not a lot of the other, but that's how much they wanted. Each one of us is going to want these four things of calling, contribution, connection, and control differently, but it's a matter of how much you want. So when I was younger and I was dropping out of law school and I had all the calling in the world because I was so inspired by this leader, by this candidate, it didn't matter that I was getting the coffee for the guy who got the coffee for the guy who got the coffee and I had absolutely no connection to the work whatsoever. Didn't matter to me then. My rubric has changed now. So if you want, we can go through those each one by one. Yeah, I love that because I think, like you said, we know when we are in dissonance. We know like we feel when we are in consonance. But I love how you all personalize this in these four different dimensions, mm -hmm. like, so to speak, because it explains that because people like you are saying, saying, oh, I'm leaving my calling. Why I'm not happier? why I'm not feeling that is this meaningful because some of the other is like leverage that we are, I, I almost like to see it like um, the audio um, where you have controls of different dimensions like of the sound. Like a mixing board, yes, exactly. Mixing board. Exactly. And you have to find your own kind of level that can be different from musical style to musical style and for person to person. So tell us a little bit, give us an example of calling, connection, contribution and control. So calling is that 
gravitational force that gets you up in the morning. It's a leader who inspires you. It's a business you want to build. It's a bottom line you want to grow. It's a it's a it's a societal ill that you wish to remedy. It's a family you want to nurture, right? It can be anything. It is just simply your reason why. It is your purpose pure and simple. And, you know, we have a lot of people who uh, talk about purpose as if it has to have the word higher or lofty in front of it. Like it has to be this amazing thing where the angels sing and you're, you know, wearing the white hat and, you know, Mother Teresa's, you know, applauding, you know, from the front row. But the truth is that your purpose is simply your purpose, pure and simple. So if your purpose is curing cancer, I salute you. If your purpose is working at a job that allows you financial flexibility so that you can get out of debt, so that your children can make different decisions than you had to make, I salute you too. And if your purpose is buying a beach house and a Maserati, well, that's awesome too. We have to stop giving votes in our lives to people who shouldn't have voices. Your purpose is your purpose, pure and simple, end of paragraph, end of story, end of book. That's the first. The second is connection. And connection really answers the question, Anna, what if you didn't show up to work tomorrow? What if you didn't put out another podcast? Would anybody notice? Would anybody care? What's in your email box? What's in your to-do list? What's on your calendar? And are those things important to someone else or are they important to you? So connection really says, is the work you're doing on a daily basis connected to that calling that you just thought about that you want to serve? The third piece is contribution. And now where connection... Let me just, because I want to... The connection also has to do a little bit with the sense of belonging and community. I just want if you can expand a little bit that. Well, so it's really contribution is really about the sense of belonging. So if connection is really about the work, contribution is really about you. The work you do should contribute something to your life. Love it. How does this work allow you to manifest your values on a daily basis? How does this work allow you to be part of a community that is meaningful to you? How does this work give you uh, the trajectory that you want your career to take? How does this work contribute to the kind of life or the lifestyle that you're looking to have? So how does this work contribute to the kind of person you want to become, the community to which you want to belong, and the kind of you know earnings that you want to have in your wallet? And that's really contribution. And, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh, I don't know. I mean, that feels sort of self-directed, self-interested, selfish. It feels ambitious, right? But like if having, if being part of a better community, one that serves you better, one that brings out your best, if having more money, more time, more leverage, more freedom, more power, more voice allows you to show up better for the people that you love, the businesses you're trying to build, the causes that you hold dear, I think it's not your ambition. I think it's your responsibility. And then the last piece is control. And control really is all about our own personal agency. So how much control do you have in the work that you're doing about the teams to which you're assigned, the prospects that get put in your portfolio, um, how much your hustle uh, uh, contributes to your earnings? Can you control the metrics by which your work is judged? Do you get to control where and how and when you want to work? And I mean, you know, I've done a three-year study across 74 different countries. I have almost 6,000 answers of people taking a pretty long assessment at, at which you can find, by the way, at limitlessassessment.com. And and I can tell you across something like 3 million data points that over the course of the pandemic, people actually increased how much control they had. They went down in how much calling, connection, and contribution they had, but they increased how much control they had, which seems sort of counterintuitive, except that you think about at the beginning of the pandemic, leaders were like, 
don't do anything that's not mission critical. Don't do anything that's not about survival. We got rid of all the busy work. We got rid of all the unimportant meetings. We got rid of all the unnecessary stuff. And we only did what was absolutely mission critical. And our workers had a chance to work where they wanted to work, how they wanted to work, when they wanted to work to get that work done. So they actually had a ton more control over their work. And so here's the thing. There's four elements calling, connection, contribution, and control. Each one of us is going to want and need different amounts at different times. So, you know, if you are uh, an entrepreneur and, you know, you can be your own calling, right? That That's amazing. But you may feel like this work, what you're doing all day, every day, isn't necessarily always connected, but that's okay as long as you keep the work going, right? It, it You only have to have as much of each of these as you actually want. So if you don't care at all, like when I was that young kid on that, on that campaign, I didn't care about having no connection. It didn't matter to me. I didn't care about having no control. It didn't matter to me because I had all the calling in the world that I wanted and I was manifesting my values every single day. The contribution was there nonstop. So that's when I talk about how like at each age and at each stage, we really have to reassess who we are and what we want and allow our definition of success to change because the rubric of these four C's of consonants are also going to change. So it's like our musical taste changes with time. <laughs> exactly. And like you were saying before, like the mixing board, like if I'm sitting at a mixing board and I'm turning the bass way up on classical music or jazz, that's going to sound really dissonant, right? It's going to sound off. But if I'm turning the vocals way loud on something, you know, that, that, that it, you know, on a rap track and I'm turning down the bass, that's also going to sound weird. So it has to fit where we are at each individual time. And, you know, I think all of us at each age and at each life's change continue to change and grow and iterate and evolve. And so just allowing ourselves the the ability i think probably every seven years or so we're sort of new people if there, even if there's not a global pandemic right like maybe we have children maybe the children leave the house maybe we get married maybe we get divorced maybe we've changed our career completely maybe i don't know there you know social media exists and it didn't exist before right so the way that we do our work and what we care about changes and so i think having a reassessment every sort of seven five to seven years is really helpful to help us realign whether that 17-year-old person who, you know, was told to pick a major, pick a trade is still the person we are today. Love that. And so let's think about the leader. It can be an organization or even we can think about self-leadership like yourself. You are a leader of yourself and do that re-evaluation five, seven years, uh, a critical point. How can they find tips for finding the right consonants for them? Well, I would say if you're a busy leader, uh, you don't have to take my 67 question limitless assessment, but there's a four question quiz at myfourquestions.com that has a question of it each one of these. I think um, that's probably the best place to start because it really helps you know what are what what am I missing um, that I didn't realize that I that I needed before. I think here's what happens with leaders especially entrepreneurs. I mean, if you're sort of going up the corporate ladder, you're a doer and then you become a manager and then you become a leader. But if you're an entrepreneur, you kind of go from doing to leading pretty quickly without anybody teaching you how to manage in the middle. And yes. that's tricky, right? It's really tricky. And so, you know, if you are somebody who enjoys the innovation and sort of, um, 
I mean, at least for me, when I was an entrepreneur, I loved getting under the hood and poking around and figuring out how do I make the car go faster? And my staff of 30 was like, the car runs just fine. Can you just let us take it on the road and see how fast it goes? And I'd be like, well, wait a minute, let's Let's keep iterating, let's tinker. And they were like, oh my God, it made them crazy. Um, So, you know, I had to get, I had to understand what gave my team consonants. And I think what happens, and I just wrote about this for Harvard Business Review, is that I think as leaders, we think, I just need to throw more money at my team. Like I've got this really noisy salesperson and they keep coming into my office saying like, what have you done for me lately? And so I keep throwing more money at them. But then, you know, you're just sort of kicking the can down the road. And it may be that what gives that salesperson consonants, it may be more money, but it may also be that they want to have more control. It may be that they want to sit on the philanthropic committee and decide where your year end, you know, philanthropic dollars are going. Maybe they want more calling, right? So it's understanding what gives them Continents, because I think what happens is just like our definition of success is outdated, our definition of management and how we should manage our people and what's going to inspire them is outdated as well. I mean, I don't know. I know you, you, you know, you, you grew up in Portugal and Spain. I don't know how you worked with um, college counselors or career counselors there, but in the United States, uh, tell me if this is the same. You sat down with a counselor and they gave you a list of things like you should look for, you know, a lot of money and a leader who inspires you. And um, what's the mission of the organization and how many skills will you learn and how big is the impact and uh, where's the job located and how much will they pay you and and how prestigious will it look on your resume? Right. There were these motivating factors that would convince anybody at any time to look for a job. And as leaders, we just assume that our people have the same list in their head, but we never stop to ask how are they prioritizing that list? So if you have somebody who, you know, is like me, 800 thread count sheets, princess, I want to go away on the weekend to like fabulous, amazing cosmopolitan cities and stay in beautiful hotel rooms and have my breakfast in bed in that amazing bed while I'm looking out over some incredible, you know, beautiful city. It takes a lot of money, doesn't cost a lot, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time, but it costs a lot of money. I don't, I'm not inspired by a lot of vacation time, but I want the dollars. There may be other people who are like, that sounds awful. I'd rather go deep into the wilderness and have my breakfast in front of a campfire in a sleeping bag as I look out over the sunrise at like the Grand Canyon or something. And that doesn't cost a lot of money, but it takes a ton of time. So if I have those two people who are working for me, one is super inspired by salary by money, and one is super inspired by freedom and time off, I need to manage them differently. So when I find my consonants as a leader, I also have to make sure I'm understanding everybody else's consonants as well. And then you also have to take it one step further and say, I I decided to start this company. I decided to run this company. I love being in the innovation and the growth and the interesting, like what's in the future. My job as a leader is to be 18 to 24 months into the future, coming up with solutions to problems my clients don't even realize they have yet. But my team, if they are really firing at all cylinders and they are incredibly good at what they do, they're focused on today, this week, this quarter, maybe if I'm lucky. So the better I get at my job and the better they get at their job, the further apart we are. So it's making sure that when I'm finding my definition of consonants, if it's building my team, I also need to understand sort of where their head is at as well. Yeah, I love this. And for the listeners, I will make sure that I put all the links in the show notes of this episode. Uh, and I, if this resonates with them, uh, the, I think the best way is to buy the book Limitless. But I know that speaking about future, you are already working in your next book, in your yes. next project. Can you just give us a sneak peek? 
Yes, yes. So um, my next book is going to be called Wonder Hell. So (laughs) you know those moments where you've had a little bit of success, like the thing that you wanted to do, it's starting to work. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's amazing. It's exciting. It's humbling. It's wonderful. And also, oh my God, it's also showing me that I'm made of more than I ever imagined. That's terrifying. It's anxiety provoking. It's stressful. It's kind of hell, right? So success is wonderful, but it's also kind of hell. It's kind of wonder hell. And I experienced my own wonder hell when Limitless came out and suddenly it debuted, you know, number two in the Washington Post bestseller right behind Michelle Obama. I was on the Today Show, Good Morning America. It was unbelievable. And I was like, oh, no, I should be able to do more with it. And you did this burden of potential came crushing down on my shoulders. And I realized that I was stuck in this place where we think success should feel really good. So why doesn't it feel really good? Why don't things get easier when we're successful? Why doesn't it get smoother? Why don't we get more confident? And so I started talking to other people about this feeling and I ended up doing like a hundred different interviews, um, uh, you know, on my own podcast with, with, with uh, Olympic medalists, with startup unicorns, with sort of first of, right, glass ceiling shatterers, uh, with everyday people like you and like me who found themselves in wonder hell, but who also found their way out of it and- were the better for it. And I learned a lot of lessons in that. And I capture those lessons in the TEDx that we um, talked about before we started recording, which has been up for just a few weeks and is almost at 150,000 views, which is, again, another wonder hell moment right there. Like, oh no, it's got potential. What do I do? Um, am I am I up for the task? Um, but, I, but I also learned a lot about how those people came out the other side of it better for it and and stronger and, and, and um, you know, more capable and more confident. But what was the most amazing to me is that these individuals, all of whom are incredibly successful humans. I mean, Alan Mulally saved Ford. Whitney Johnson is one of the top business thinkers in the in the world. Uh, Carrie Lorenz was the first female F-14 fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy. Alex Ferreira um, has won every medal possible in, in freestyle skiing. Each one of them at every age and at every stage experience crushing doubt and imposter syndrome and uncertainty and exhaustion and burnout. And they got to the other side. You have to come back when the book is out to tell us more about it. But I really admire how you walk your talk. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time, for the inspiration. I will put all those links below in the show notes. And please come back. I will. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thank you. Bye. Expanding possibilities, the mindset Thank you for listening and remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. Zone. As always, I'm so grateful you are here. Expand what's possible for you, for the ones around you, for the world. Mm-hmm.